0: Welcome to Professor's Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richmond. Professor's Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching, but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Jeff Doyle, Associate Director of Planning and Assessment in the Office of Institutional Effectiveness at Baylor University. Dr. Doyle has a BA in Biology, a Master's of Education in Counselor Education, and a PhD in Higher Education, all from the University of Virginia. Previous institutions for which Jeff has worked include Lynchburg College, Eastern Mennonite University, Florida State University, the Federal Executive Institute, Shenandoah University, and Appalachian State University. Before serving in his current role, Dr. Doyle served for nine years as the Dean for Student Learning and Engagement at Baylor, where he oversaw the departments of campus living and learning, new student programs, the Academy for Leadership Development and Student Activities. Throughout his time at Baylor, Dr. Doyle has taught numerous behavior, leadership, and higher education management courses. We are excited to have Dr. Doyle on the show to discuss the full circle of student involvement with the university, from the freshman experience to assessing program outcomes. Jeff Doyle thank you so much for coming on the show thanks
1: Christopher good to be here I'm excited to chat with you
0: well you have a lot of experience in higher education in a lot of different roles and so there's so much that we could be talking about here both from the meta level of what the institution does and how the institution thinks about effective education but you're also a very experienced Classroom teacher as well, so I'm sure we'll we'll find many ways to kind of get into the conversation of effective teaching. But one of the things that I wanted to start out here with you is to talk about. You can bring in your perspective as uh, formerly as a dean for student learning and engagement here at Baylor. Is how you think that that faculty think about students non-academic activities. You've had a, had opportunities, I'm assuming, to really get to know students both on a personal level outside of the classroom, but also in terms of what students do with their time outside of the classroom in that broader, like what organizations they're involved in and that kind of thing. So how do you, What do, what is your perspective on how the spheres of the non-academic side of college life and the academic side of college life Interact, sure, yeah. Well, yeah. I I think relatively. I was a
1: biology major, so I often think pretty practically. So if you take a week of of time, it's 168 hours in a week, and you subtract out the let's say seven hours a night of sleeping. We'll say 50 hours a week. You come up with 80 something hours. <clears throat> well, you come up with 118. Then you take out the number of hours in class for students. So an average student is in class for about 15 hours a week. Now we used to say that every student should spend three hours for every hour in class, for their class. Then if you look at the accreditation guidelines, they specifically state that faculty should make sure they have two hours of work for every one hour of work in the class. But if you look at national data on what students are actually investing in their classes self-reported and measuring in different ways they're basically saying they're spending about an hour out of class for every hour in class so the reality then is out of 168 hours you subtract some time for sleep you've got 30 of their hours are being spent in class and preparing for class and so what you're left with then is about 80 hours where they are awake and they're not doing anything class-related. And so the reality is there's a huge opportunity there to influence students positively or negatively, and that's what the folks outside the classroom are trying to do, is take advantage of that environment to do something positive while the students are present and awake.
0: Is there a way that faculty can maybe be gently trained to think about these spheres as non-competitive but more as complementary. What's your perspective on that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I I had uh, actually written and researched a little bit on ha- that dynamic over time, and student affairs basically started in the late 1800s, and the profession itself was formed in 1937 with a statement. But it used to be that student services were primarily kind of undergirding and supporting students for success in the classroom and then when they started to think they warranted some credibility they developed these theories of student development which are now taught in graduate programs throughout the country but you know i suggest and others do that that those theories begin to be a competing framework with faculty so fact student affairs people were saying, we deserve, we warrant uh, attention as our own field. And I think that was detrimental. And so in the in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a movement to focus on learning in universities, which was a, a philosophy that united those two sides. So if we talk about what are students learning, it brings faculty and student affairs staff together. The other thing I'll mention is there was a study done in 2014. It's called Purdue Gallup study. Anybody could look it up. It was on 30,000 people post-college. And it asked them, what, what was most impactful in your college experience? And they compared the people who had had engaging professional careers and those who were not as happy or engaged in their professional career and they went back and they said, okay, what was different about their questions in college? And they found that they they talk about the big three and the big six. The big three were the three variables that had the most impact. So people post-college are most engaged in their work environment if these three things happen. They had a professor who got them excited about learning. They had someone at the college who cared about them as a person and they had a mentor who encouraged them to pursue their goals and dreams. Those are things I think that again unite both sides of student affairs, even using the word sides, create the dichotomy, but we're all wanting students to be excited about learning. We all want to show them that we care about them and we all want to give them opportunities to be, to be mentored.
0: Do you think that there's room for conversation at a place like Baylor where we are Pursuing R one and research is more and more a part of the tenure and tenure track fac- faculty experience. You think there's room for that conversation of saying the the student affairs folks here are actually helping to fill a gap? Is that a good way to put it? You know, I think about the history of higher education and you know the 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 liberal arts tradition had faculty that were very involved, you know, 50, 60, 100 years ago, very involved in student life like we think of it today, um, eating with them in the dining halls. And you hear these almost like romantic stories about how faculty were part of the student life. But now faculty just there's just so many hours in the day. Right. And if they were being asked to do research and grant work, the student affairs really comes up into that void. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, that's that's basically how the profession emerged of student
1: affairs is that the German model of education in the late 1800s, early 1900s, which ultimately led them to, you know, become this nation that you wanted to take on the world in a couple different scenarios, um, was quite positive and ex- spreading knowledge. It's almost like that was the sputnik of that time period. And so the United States was like, man, knowledge is exploding. We have got to get on board. And the way to do that is to shift some of our colleges, create some colleges, you know, that's where a, a couple of major federal acts were created that resulted in many colleges. But we've got to focus more on the creation of knowledge which shifted faculty's attention away from the mentoring students as much. And therefore, you then had some major, if you go back to student protests and riots and faculty members, that you know, my alma mater were killed by students accidentally. They were like, we have to have some way of working with our students in a positive framework uh, that, that helps them grow. And so, yes, I think that that, that has happened, and I think the, the key to look at is, when a faculty member goes to their year-end evaluation, what are they evaluated on the basis of? And it's typically the research production, the quality of their teaching evaluations, and maybe some form of service to the university. But I often think there's many faculty are having transformative relationships on students' lives And that is not captured as much at universities besides word of mouth um, and hopefully some sort of awards.
0: One of our watchwords, and I don't think Baylor is unique in this at all, but one of our watchwords over the course of the pandemic when we were working with faculty and helping faculty to think about their work and also what we were hearing from faculty about what they were learning was the importance of empathy with with students and it seems to me that this is something that's that shouldn't just be a pandemic thing that that has that has emerged here but that good teaching good student mentorship is built on empathy and part of the pieces uh, one of the pieces of empathy has to be that I'm that that as a faculty member I'm getting to know my students and I know something of what they do, what they're interested in. And so that's one of the things that I think is really it's it's mysterious. It's opaque to many faculty. What are students mm-hmm. doing when they're not sitting in, in my classroom on a Tuesday morning at nine thirty? Mm-hmm. All sorts of assumptions may fill, fill in that that, set of, uh, th- that particular question. What, what have you learned in your work in higher ends in different roles about what students actually do with their time and how, and how might faculty be helped with that knowledge? Sure, yeah. I mean, I read, I listened to a podcast
1: recently where there was an actual situation where a bunch of young men were stranded on an island and how they survived uh, without any adults there. And it was in big contrast to the book that we read a lot about. You can probably remind me of the name of the book where the children are left on an island end up killing each other and, and doing You things. thinking Lord of the Flies? Yes. There you go. That, that book is not reality, at least as we've seen it in, in this one example. And I think what happens is at 5 o'clock, this campus is 99% 18 to 22-year-olds here. But there's no massive Lord of the Flies movement. Generally, many of them are having Bible studies. They're gathering in groups to talk about their growth as leaders and impacting each other. They're spending time listening and talking to each other as they deal with struggles. And because at many colleges, you know, a party or two may get the attention of the news or it plays well in movies or entertainment, that becomes a more dominant narrative when really that's a very small amount, particularly at Baylor, of students' time.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your own teaching. What kind of classes do you teach here at Baylor?
1: Yeah, I mean, right now I teach in the management department. There's a, a class called MGT 30, 305, Leadership and Organizational Behavior. So that's that's the main one I teach.
0: So one of the recurring comments, you were generous enough to, to share some student feedback from your most recent classes. One of the recurring comments from your students is that they appreciate the community that you foster in class. And I actually had to copy and paste this one student had said this class exemplifies the Baylor mission of empowering leaders in a caring Christian environment. Did you just just do cartwheels when you when you read <laughs> that? What was your reaction when you read that or comments like it? I mean that's what I was going for, right? I mean, all faculty ask themselves, what are our
1: objectives for this class? And I wanted students to be able to say that. I think that is rooted in part in that I know that students come to college hungry for relationship and more so now than ever before. Right? And I was listening to a podcast on Goethe's Hofstede's six cultural dimensions of of the world. And one of those dimensions is individuality versus community. And he looks at, and this has been repeated over years, hundred nations. And which nation is the most individualistic nation in the world? Do you have any guesses?
0: I'm going to go with the obvious choice and say the U.S. Yes,
1: (laughs) yes. You know, and obviously there's many other school, uh, universities, uh, nations at the bottom of that list. So To me, the result is we've got these 18-year-olds coming in and they're being stripped of most of their support network, right, that they have in their homes. And so they're wide-eyed, they're vulnerable, and they're like, I've heard all these incredible things about college. What's going to happen? And I think faculty often think I've got to deliver this content when their students would more likely subscribe to the statement of, I, uh, I'm going to care how much, you know, when I know how much you care. And so I, I sort of approach my teaching from that way. So I focus on showing them support and care at the beginning and, and then try and get them excited about learning. Like one of the first things we cover is that learning should be fun. And if you're not enjoying this class, then I'm not doing my job. And so I spend time meeting with students one-on-one. I give them credit for meeting with me or one of my peer leaders one-on-one. Another thing I do is that in today's age, and I'm a little off the, off the beaten path here, there's no reason for a group of people to come into a room and listen to someone talk at them in most cases. We can do that on a screen. We can do it by audio. There's lots of ways to do that. So if we're going to take the time and effort to get a group of people in a room, let's make better use of that time. So basically all the content I'm trying to deliver to my students is done outside the classroom, and then inside the classroom, I'm using methods of learning that aren't lecture-based to integrate that knowledge. You know, there's a learning pyramid that came out about 60 years ago that basically indicated that, only 5% of what we hear in a lecture is retained long-term. Obviously, you can do some things to to tweak that. 10% of what we read is retained long-term. But you flip to the other end of the the pyramid, and 90% of what we teach others is retained, or 50% of what we discuss is retained, or 70% of what we practice is retained. So I try and keep things like that in mind.
0: Yeah. So what I hear you discussing here, and I I think that I've seen in your blogs, you using this term is is flipped learning, the flipped classroom. And so if there's listeners who are interested in getting a little bit more of the theory and some of the literature on that, it it abounds. The literature on this uh, is 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 growing. And, you know, there's there's really nothing new about that other than the the breadth of disciplines now that have embraced that. Really it's the it's the seminar model of I I assigned you some something to do outside of class. You've done it. I've given you the right incentives to do it, you or the motivations to, to do it. And then when we come together in class, we're all working on something together. Right. In some in some capacity. Yeah. Exactly. I'm wondering if you could maybe help us think too a little bit more through the tension of individualism and community you were you were mentioning a, a minute ago, I agree that students do crave this community and your that your students comments really bear this out, how much they just appreciate getting to know each other and they comment about how I made friends in this class, I don't make friends in classes and it's just like it's just uh, it's just fascinating to to see how students, really glob on to this, but there's also more than a decade of their own experience where in most public school settings, they've been taught to think about education in a very individualistic way about their grades, about their test scores, about their their rankings in the class. Everything seems so focused on individual achievement and in a lot of ways they can't shake that unless we do something pretty drastic to help them shake that so do you sense any of that tension in your students how do you how would you advise faculty to kind of gently navigate that and help students kind of come on to that? more communal side of things.
1: Well, this, you know, this is goes back to a philosophy that I, I ascribe to, and that is when you look at the people who are most successful in life, it was people whose behavior continued and persevered over time. You know, we talk about resilience. We talk about grit. If you take a paragon of society, someone famous that's achieved a lot, it's, it's never, it's rarely that they're the most intelligent person in the room. It's that they kept getting up when they got knocked down now obviously privilege plays a role in in society's biggest leaders but the people that are most successful in life as my read of it from the literature is they don't give up when things get tough and so that's the way i frame my class is i don't really care about your grade i want to give you all a's okay and so let's do that you know And the way we're going to do that is the focus is on learning. So any assignment you do, you can redo. And the goal is just to capture the knowledge that comes from that assignment. Any assignment that is late, you can turn in. You might get a little bit off of that, but you can still turn it in. So I am not about trying to teach them the importance of deadlines and achieving a certain score. It's more about they're learning because I want them to enjoy the class, too. I'm like, I don't want you to worry about your grade. All I ask for you is your attention in class and out of class. And if I can't maintain your attention, you need to let me know.
0: Uh, My my own little confessional here about persistence is it, it probably took me way too long in life to to get to this point. But when I was applying to Ph.D. programs, sent out all the, all the applications, and just didn't get into any of the programs that I had applied to. And I remember talking with a professor who was kind of my mentor in this situation, and she said to me, a lot of times it's the people who keep applying who end up getting into these programs. That's, that's the key to this. And that was just like a light bulb to me. Like I said, it probably shouldn't have taken me that long in life to realize that persistence was was that important but this that's the kind of thing that yeah. students oftentimes they come into uh, into our classrooms they're 18 19 20 years old they haven't had much experience with any kind of big letdowns really yeah. and that was um, I'm kind of ashamed to say that's that's kind of where I was at 25 when I was applying to grad schools so do you do you have convers- those hard conversations with students when sometimes they're just they're faced with that first kind of failure maybe it's not in your class because I think you've set things up differently but you're getting maybe they're bringing in some other things I mean it's a part of life like so integrating the faith aspect is you know and
1: we pray before every class the class is structured around the greatest commandment um, which aligns with I think most leadership literature and that is we're going to learn to love with our heart soul mind and strength we're going to love others and we're going to know ourselves. And so, within that, you know there's even a section this semester on how do you deal with hurt in your life. Um, you know, the book of James talks about consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because they make you mature and complete. So every human in life will be let down multiple times or hurt multiple times. And if we're not teaching students how to deal with that, <clears throat> we're not doing our jobs, you know, but God does that by loving us unconditionally and using those opportunities for learning and growth. So when these tough times come for me, and I will share self-disclose about myself sometimes, and they might do the same themselves. And uh, we talk about, well, what could we learn from this in the midst of it?
0: Mm -hmm. There were a lot of entities here at Baylor, and I'm sure other institutions can echo this, that helped the institution fulfill its mission during the the most difficult times of the COVID pandemic. One of the things that Baylor really had to learn how to do quickly is online teaching, and not just the emergency remote that caught us in March of 2020, but classes that were then planned from from the beginning of the semester to be online in the next uh, fall and spring. So a lot of offices helped us kind of get our heads around this and help faculty plan their courses and think about their teaching in these settings and and your office of of, uh, institutional effectiveness helped with getting data on what students are experiencing online students are experiencing. And this was just such a new thing for us uh, here at Baylor. I don't think, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think before the pandemic, there was such a thing as an online only student Mm -hmm. at Baylor. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden we had, what was it, about 10% in the fall of 2020. So that was just, that was a new thing for instructors. And boy, was it a new thing for, for students who think of a place like Baylor as a residential experience. So say a little bit about what you learned about online students and their experience um, during the pandemic.
1: Yeah, obviously, when you think about a college and you ask someone, they, they talk about you take these classes. But going back to the beginning, I talked about you're only in class for 15 hours a week when you strip away the college experience and have someone in their home or apartment and they log on for 15 hours a week, there's a huge vacuum left there of what the heck am I paying a certain amount of money for? Parents in particular ask that, you know. Um, And so I felt like we, we needed to think about these students' lives outside those 15 hours. And I discovered in, you know, serving kind of as an advisor to this group of online-only students that they, no surprise, wanted connection. They wanted meaning. They wanted friendship. The problem is we as a culture, a world maybe, we we haven't totally learned how to build online community. You know, I was reading this book about email recently, and like when it first came out, a number of, you know, writers said this is a joke. It'll never go big. It'll never be... This is too famous. This is too clunky. But I think many new things are that way. And we have to decide if we're willing to learn it. And I think online learning is here to stay. Is it going to replace? Maybe not, but it's going to democratize learning. So people now that work 40 hours a week and have certain responsibilities can log on at certain times and take their classes. If a student has a health disease and health issue and they can't do it, <clears throat> they can be educated in that way. So I don't want us to run the other way from the online experience. I want us to really ask ourselves, how do you build connection in the online environment? And, and recognize that one of the things that makes a place like Baylor so great is is the experience outside the classroom. You know, I've worked at nine different universities. I've never been anywhere where the out-of-classroom ex- experience is as rich and as as in-depth as a place like Baylor. <clears throat> but when we have students who are online, how do we translate that <laughs> into an online experience? It's not easy, but it's not something we, I don't think we should ignore.
0: What did the students say? Because I know you collected students Feedback What did those online students say made for a successful class and effective teacher in those online settings? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's
1: a lot of different things, obviously, but if you go back to the big three we were talking about, when you asked them what was most helpful, it was that even though I'm in India or uh, Bangladesh, this teacher took time to talk to me. I felt like they got to know me. They thought about this experience from my perspective. And so anything that keeps a student from feeling like they're a number or a typed name on a screen, you know, that's why I think synchronous learning is is much much better for asynchronous than asynchronous i'm not saying we shouldn't do asynchronous but we should always err on the side of relationship versus kind of a transactional experience
0: jeff doyle thank you so much for joining the show today we really appreciate it
1: thank you christopher
0: Our thanks again to Dr. Jeff Doyle for speaking with us today. In our show notes, you'll find links to Jeff's blog as well as a few of the resources that came up in our conversation, including the Purdue Gallup study. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Professors Talk Pedagogy.